Welcome, friends and dear listeners, to Icewind Dale, Rhyme of the Frost Maiden. My name is David Blanchard Wright, and I will be our dungeon master for this game. In this Session Zero episode, I'm going to share with you a summary of the story thus far, the backstories of the player characters, and some of the house rules in play in this campaign. This is a homebrew game, and we will occasionally deviate from the core rules of D&D. I look forward to having you along on this wonderful journey. A quick disclaimer before we begin. This game does occasionally include adult themes, explicit subject matter, and potentially triggering content. Listener discretion is advised. Without further ado, let's jump into the story thus far. Section 1. Backstory. Simone Osterling was in the unique position of being banished from her father's good graces, and sent to the frozen north despite being his legal heir. Her inheritance dispent on a worthless investment in Icewind Dale, an empty plot of land, she is told to prove her worth by making something of it. She gathered her closest allies to accompany her on the journey to Icewind Dale, determined to once again undermine her father's will and retain her independence. She, a half-elf enchantment mage, was accompanied by Mycena, a turtle druid of the Spore and War Cleric, employed as the family chef. Tina, a human totem barbarian employed as the family's nanny. Joshua, a human scout rogue employed as a huntsman. Goose, the Kiansai monk employed as a sponsored athlete. And Dipper, the tabaxi warlock employed as the party's bookkeeper. Each followed for their own motivations, but their mutual objective was to use Simone's banishment as an opportunity to improve their lot in life, away from Baldur's Gate and Waterdeep. The journey to Icewind Dale saw the party lost in a terrible blizzard, Goose and Dipper struck down by a yeti in the cold, and taken to its lair for a terrible fate. Once the storm abated, the party followed Joshua's incredible tracking skills to find the yeti's lair and slay the beast. Upon its defeat, the sound of combat attracted a young white dragon roosting in the nearby mountains. It descended upon the party and used its frost breath to devastating effect, instantly slaying Goose and freezing him solid. The dragon defeated, mortally wounded, and barely escaped. It is marked by the warlock's eldritch powers long enough to identify its lair before it perishes from its wounds. What treasures lay in the slain dragon's home are as of yet unfound. The party journeys to Ten Towns proper with Goose in tow, hoping to resurrect him, but the local priests of Brinchander are incapable of producing such a miracle. His body is taken to Kerr Koenig with the promise of aid. Within Brinchander and the Ten Towns in general, the party decides to explore and foster relationships with all of the local towns and their inhabitants before establishing their own city. On their travels, they meet Vox, an Asimar bard of the College of Blades, who joins the party. Unimpressed with the area's worship of the Frost Maiden, the party turns towards proactively praising their own gods, rather than reactively sacrificing to avoid the Frost Maiden's wrath. Acquiring items of power, experience, and a growing mutual respect, the party is confronted by moral dilemmas and the wilds of the Dale itself. Joshua perishes in the cold, trying to save a man 
left to die, and is contacted by Levistus, a lord of the Nine Hells who hates his own kind, and saves him from his frigid state. The Speaker of Goodmead is dead, avenged by the party, only for them to be confronted with a rigged election for the next town speaker. Attempted intervention leads to a confrontation with thugs of the Zentarum, who barely overcome the party and slay most of their members. The three surviving thugs scatter, each taking away from their experience a different lesson. One's mind is awakened to its psychic potential by the warlock's eldritch powers. A second's mind is broken into paranoia and horror by the mage's enchantments. And a third's confidence swells from the victory and leads to further honing of skill. After their defeat, the surviving Tina and Mycena use the cauldron of rebirth they found upon Dipper's person to revive the party, relying upon the kindness of Ker Koenig's cultist patrons, worshippers of Levistus. Changed by their experiences, the party partially forsook their quest in the name of justice. In retaliation, they found and eventually hunted down and killed two of the three thugs. The third remains at large and is as of yet unfound. Perspective changed by his death, Dipper the Warlock breaks his pact with Xanathar and retires from the party to live with Goose. Their childhood crushes, finally blossoming into a romance after Goose's resurrection. The party is joined in their travels by a wandering blind monk named Wyron, a half-elf, astral-self monk, intent upon finding himself in the cold north. Their ire cooling, the party carries on with their original quest, resolving what matters remain unsolved, and finally return to the River Fork where the new town was to be established. Dubbed Fuckfurther, it would grow to be the Jewel of the North, Shortly after the city's construction began, the party followed the guidance of Vox to an ice-bound ship in the Sea of Moving Ice. The vessel had been turned into the lair of an ancient white dragon, Arveturachi, the White Worm. Certain that something of import was there, the party infiltrated the ship and scoured it for meaningful treasure. The worm returned and threatened the party with annihilation for catching them and stealing from it. Instead, Vox the Bard convinced the beast to show mercy and allow them a chance to make it up to it. Upon Arveturachi's back as a saddle, seated, frozen corpse, which the dragon speaks to like a friend and companion. Offering to revive the dead, the ancient dragon accepts their offer. The ritual irreparably damages the cauldron of rebirth and prematurely ages Simone, but succeeds in resurrecting a powerful Archmage. Gratefully, the mage agrees to a truce with the party on behalf of his draconic ally. Simone retires from her adventuring career to lead Fookfurther as its new town speaker. Within the vessel itself, the party found an ancient journal and learned of a particularly bitter deity, the Bitch Queen, Umberly, goddess of sea storms. At this point, the party has reached level 6 and is given 5 years of downtime. The first year 
sees a particularly cold winter form an ice bridge across the northern pole, bridging together two continents that normally cannot interact. Trade flourishes as this shortcut allows goods to move in unexpected ways. Ferk further takes full advantage and grows tremendously, becoming a hub of trade and commerce in the Dale. Some joke that the area ought to be renamed the Eleven Towns. Vox departs from the party to travel across the ice bridge to lands unknown. The second year sees a string of thefts gather in frequency, a particular substance being sought, chardolin. Tremendous amounts of it are stolen and procured, as well as anything that even resembles the black glass. Legends say that the Shardolin is the product of an ancient mage's demonically corrupted tower exploding, the stuff considered evil by most until cleansed. Some say it even can cause madness in the unguarded minds of those who carry it. The third year sees a terrible thunderstorm rack the skies. Imagery of a horrible octopus strangling a frost wolf a yeti being attacked by a large fanged fish, and a white dragon attacked by a kraken. Finally, a loud crack echoes through the dale as a star streaks across the sky and slams into the mountains. Abruptly, winter ends, tropical warmth overtaking the dale. Rumors abound of a palanquin carried by animals and frost druids with a prone, beautiful woman resting upon it. None dare approach until the sightings suddenly stop that summer. Shortly thereafter, winter begins anew in the middle of the summer months, racking the dale in the worst cold it's ever experienced. The fourth and fifth year is a winter without end, causing the members of the dale to come together to try to find a way to survive the terrible conditions. Torn apart by fear and distrust, little ground is gained until Simone steps forward to promise to resolve the seemingly primary issue, the ongoing thefts that each town is blaming on the other. Gathering her most trustworthy companions once again, Simone sends them off with her only lead thus far, a young human sorcerer of the aberrant mind from Dugan's Hole named Bogan. Who swears he's seen invisible folks wandering around? Returning to Dugan's Hole, the party finds that Bogan was not lying and pursue the tracks to confront a small force of Dwergar, who are dwarves that live in the Underdark, who attack the party immediately. They learn that the Dwergar are planning to invade Icewind Dale and have already begun with an attack on Tourmaline via its mines. Mycena delivers a Dwergar prisoner to Dugan's Hole while the party speeds off to defend Tourmaline. They find the city sacked, its defenders butchered, its people taken as slaves and marched off to Lonelywood. In Lonelywood, the party confronts the remaining Dwergar, a vanguard left behind to indulge in their sadistic tendencies. They are slain for their terrible atrocities before confronting an ally of the Frost Maiden, a Frost Druid commanding Timber Wolves to harass and slay civilians that would not allow themselves to be chained. 
The party barely survives the encounter, being rejoined by Mycena, who in Dugan's Hole met a human paladin with an oath of redemption named Ganyan. His mentor recently dead and his knightly order absent, Ganyan agrees to aid the party. Traveling across the tundra, they found their way to the mountains far to the east of Ten Towns. Three days of travel saw them tired and cold, tracking the Dwergar and their slaves through blizzard conditions. Yet Joshua, the tracker, did not relent. Hunted down to a mountain cave, the party found it filled with vile berserkers, who wield weapons made of the hated Shardolin. Intercepting a communication via a magical brazier, the party discovers that the Dwergar had paid the Berserker King a tithe in slaves to pass through his domain and back into the Underdark. The slaves were being made to fight one another, the victors implanted with Shardolin beneath their flesh and driven mad by the horrible substance. The party defeats the Berserkers and realized through the combat that a significant number of them belonged to Tina and Wyron's barbarian tribe. They confront the Berserker King. He is defeated in combat and slain for the atrocities he has committed. His blade, a weapon called the Wrathforged Axe, is claimed by Wyron. And that is where we pick up in our next session. Section 2. Character Backstories Tina, played by Sophie. Tina descends from a tribe of barbarians. Her chosen animal totem is of a hummingbird, which mechanically is the eagle. During peace times, she did mercenary work and picked up the blacksmithing trade from dwarven allies. While serving in the Austerling's estate, she became pregnant with a half-elf child and was dismissed from her position. The Austerlings aggressively recruited her to join their household as a nanny, for they needed a strong and capable caretaker to double as a bodyguard for their fragile brood. Fearing that rejecting the offer from the high-profile Austerlings could have dire consequences, she agreed. During this time, she falls in love with Mycena, and decides that in order to give her newborn daughter the best possible life and keep her as close as possible, she must switch her child with the Austerling's latest. The Austerling child is sent to her tribe. The only explanation sent with him is that of an orphan in need. Against all odds, the Austerling aloofness allows her plan to succeed, and she gets to raise Simone by proxy. Mycena, a spore druid and a war cleric, has little to no memory of his homeland. He was raised in the Austerling household in what was lovingly called a petting zoo. However, growing capable of speech and producing interesting delicacies, the turtle was allowed to work as a party as the family's chef. 
After an unfortunate poisoning of one of the Austerling children. Sorry about the pause there, folks. We had some technical difficulties. Returning to the story of Mycena, the Spore Druid grew up as a member of the Austerling household, a second-class citizen treated as a family pet who got to grow as a skilled artisan, finding himself enthralled by the cooking of delicacies. Mycena's path was forever changed when one of the Austerling member house was poisoned fearing of blame and forever more careful to ensure that the food and drink that they consume would be purified Mycena began to realize a idealization of the mushroom an almost fanatical worship of the food began to see him raising them wherever he could beneath his bed in the dark cellars and storage rooms that only he would go into. The mushrooms were grown in a variety of different settings, a variety of different species. He became a connoisseur and they began to firmly affect his cooking. And it worked. His affinity for the small, small fungi would eventually see them magically seep into his being and portions of them would start to grow upon the back of his shell falling in love with the nanny tina mycena would dedicate himself to her and to protecting simone osterling the only one of the osterling children who seemed capable of stomaching his wide variety of mushroom based meals she enjoyed them without question and he enjoyed making them for her. When Simone was to leave for Icewind Dale, Mycena came with her and Tina. Upon arriving in Icewind Dale, the turtle learned somewhat more of his ancient family history and specifically the land of their origin, Cholt. Cholt itself was a land of ancient provenance a place filled with life and creatures long thought extinct and Mycena did not realize it but he had far outlived the normal lifespan of his kind usually dying within the first half century of their life Mycena 56 years old and still strong and limber carries on beginning to learn that there is a conflict of divine proportions happening in Cholt itself. Aspects of Ubtau, the grand deity of Cholt, are beginning to be hunted by vile creatures of Set, a serpent god that lives in hell, sharing a circle with Levistus. While this conflict is not of primary importance, Mycena's faith continues to grow and be tested as he is confronted with matters of moral integrity. The character of Mycena is played by Will Miller. Dipper, played by Brayden. The young tabaxi grew up in a massive, impoverished family. 
as soon as he was of age to work. He found employment in Waterdeep with the Xanathar's organization. As an assistant to Xanathar, Dipper was granted eldritch powers to fulfill his duties. Eventually, the Beholder demanded that the young warlock go to Icewind Dale and recover a specific relic that the creature wanted. The journey saw Dipper's childhood friend die before his eyes, leading to an emotional spiral that led to the young Tabaxi dealing with a hag near East Haven. Acquiring a cauldron of rebirth from her with the promise that it would help break his chains, the warlock rejoined the party. He was slain in battle and resurrected by this very same cauldron. Dipper realized the importance of life. He broke his pact with Xanathar and devoted himself to the now-resurrected Goose. They now live in Fuckfurther. He works as a playwright and a story writer with his beloved Goose. Wyron, played by Brayden. The young boy that Tina switched with Simone, the unknowing Austerling heir, was raised by a barbarian tribe that he never really fit in with. Unaware of his adopted nature, he dedicated himself to combat and spirituality, trying to find belonging there. Instead, during a spiritual meditation, he glimpsed the astral sea and stared too deeply into it. Instead of darkness, whenever he closes his eyes, he sees bright light and colors without names. As thus, he keeps his eyes perpetually shut and relies on his almost supernatural senses. His astral self is an ever-changing representation of his emotional state. Joining the party in Icewind Dale led Wyron to finding comfort in a fellow tribesperson in Tina, and a group of misfits brought together by circumstance. He dedicated himself to the religious growth of Fookfurther and furthering his own martial capabilities. When the Dwergar threat arose, he was called upon to investigate it, and when presented with his deceased tribesmen in the Berserker Cave, a distraught Tina uttered the words, Do you see your adopted parents here? Realizing suddenly the implications, Tina explained herself, and Wyron's whole world came crashing down around him. Now wielding the sentient, wrath-forged axe, Wyron must wrestle with his newfound identity as the Austerling heir. Simone, played by John. A half-elf wizard focusing on the enchantment school of magic. Seemingly vapid and frivolous, the young woman, in truth, was keenly focused on the politics of court and the pursuit of her wizardly studies. Always vain and often spiteful, she would use enchantments to manipulate friend and foe alike with little regard for morality. Her father had arranged a betrothal for her, which she disdained. Despite her pleas, her father insisted on the arrangement. Feeling she had little recourse, she became promiscuous. She intentionally ruined her own reputation, becoming known as a harlot and a homewrecker. This caused her betrothed to back out of the arrangement and caused her father no small amount of embarrassment. In retaliation, her father gave her 
her inheritance. A small stipend and a barren plot of land that had been sitting idle ever since its foolish acquisition. Thus, her presence and her father's embarrassment would both be removed. Within Icewind Dale, Simone would be struck many fatal blows. Struck down each time, experiencing a spiritual revelation, Simone would realize that a life lived purely for one's self-edification would not be judged kindly. Seeing the speaker of Goodmead dead and interred within a temple to tear, she saw the scales weighing his spirit before at last he was found worthy. A lifetime of decisions, good and bad, just and criminal, weighed against each other. Realizing that there was more to life than simply indulging oneself, Simone devoted herself to the pursuit of justice and eventually realized that perhaps justice at the end of a sword was not in her wheelhouse. Wielding justice as a tool of political strength, she returned to Fuckfurther and invested herself heavily in running the city as well as possible. The city itself has grown tremendously under her leadership. Her acute mind and her lack of consideration for others' emotional states, leading to her making impartial and intelligently weighed decisions. Simone is now the speaker of Fuck Further and lives there perpetually. Bogan, played by John. Bogan spent his whole life in Dugan's Hole. He always felt the odd man out. At first, this was cause his mama weren't there from the hole. Then, at age five, whilst playing hooky, Bogan started making friends with the fey folk. Fairies and spites and chewingas. Now, whether by intention or accident, they left a mark on Bogan. He found he could replicate some of their tricks. At age 15, some necromancer unleashed a horrible plague upon Dugan's Hole, and most everybody got sick. Some adventurers came around and killed them. Some say they even had to do it twice. Well, most everyone recovered. But when Bogan recovered, some of the energies had left a mark. Then he had a couple more new tricks. Folks around the Hole ain't fond of the Strange, and the Strange kept coming around Bogan, so he was often kept at arm's length. By the age of 25, a big old rock fell from the sky, and a little crystalline shard from it struck his noggin. He was unconscious for a week, and folk had to get a doctor down from the city to fix him up. The doc even let him keep the shard. Bogan mostly recovered, but he did come down with a bad case of the weird. You see, strange powers kept manifesting, and unlike the other times, these ones kept growing. People whispered that Bogan was weird. And when he started talking about footprints appearing out of nowhere, they added crazy. Eventually, they stopped being whispers. After five years of ridicule and worry, fear for his own mind outweighed his fear of the outside world, and Bogan left Dugan's Hole to seek help. Goose, played by Caleb. 
Goose was an aspiring artist, going by the pseudonym Bogmoss. He kept that part of himself hidden from his adoring hockey fans. The world knew him as a good-time-loving, good drunken hockey brawler. He started his hockey career on the Austerling sponsor team, taking on a role as an enforcer due to his incredible training and physical prowess. After practice, he easily was easily found drinking and partying it up with Simone. Keeping up the tough guy act was tiring, and in downtime, he'd paint landscapes, a pastime only his childhood friend Dipper knew of. Vox, played by Caleb. Vox, an Asimar bard of the College of Blades, spent time traveling in a circus as a sword swallower. He always felt a higher calling in tear, with his odd tingling in the back of his mind as well as songs with cryptic messages of a ship trapped in the ice. Following the feeling that led him to Icewind Dale led him to meeting up with the party on the eve of Goose's death. Upon encountering Simone, he comforted the woman for the night in the most respectful way he could manage. After being invited to join the party and being threatened by Joshua, he fell into a role as a guidance counselor for the people he came to care deeply for. This role weighed on him greatly, because that song never stopped playing in his head. He tried to let the party know of the quest that led them to an encounter with an ancient white dragon. Once again, people that he cared about fell around him, but this time it was because of his miscalculations. After the party dealt with the dragon, he lost the tingling, which made way for a tremendous feeling of guilt. The year of the land bridge, he had a vivid dream from Tyr. Upon waking, the tingling had returned in full force. Tyr was calling him across the land bridge, and Vox departed from the party. Ganane, played by Caleb. A young squire, Nate was Ganane, who loyally followed his mentor and father figure, Sir Garrett Verlin, on a long quest. He was told that he was about to complete his training and take his place in a holy order of knights, but things didn't go as planned. Garrett suffered a grave injury, thus changing course to Garrett's hometown of Dugan's Hole. Shortly after the arrival in the town, Garrett's wounds became too severe, and he knew his death was imminent. He asked Ganane to use his knowledge to prepare his funerary rites, the final task that he would need to complete before being truly worthy of being a knight in his own right. After completing this request, his mentor dying and buried, Ganane started to drink his sorrows away. He got out of hand, started a bar fight, and wound up spending the night in Mean Marge's cellar, the town's colloquial drunk tank. Next morning, a turtle named Mycena arrived with a tied-up Dwergar. He invites the hungover paladin, clearly in need of purpose, to join the party. He collects his trusty steed, Hester, a magnificent warhorse with questionable origins. Joshua, 
played by Chris. Joshua is an unacknowledged bastard of Duke Osterling. Quietly sent to be raised by woodsmen and peasants, Joshua grew up as a physically capable and determined individual, but was secluded and kept away from any notion of family or friendship. Offered the insincere opportunity to become a member of the Osterling family proper, Joshua did anything that his father requested. The Duke used the physically capable and sharp-witted young man to assassinate political foes and tidy up his own household. The most noteworthy occasion is when the Duke asked Joshua to slay the inhabitant of a carriage traveling through the woods. Unaware of the identity of the passenger, Joshua lays a careful trap and overturns the carriage. Swinging open the door to finish the job, he sees a very familiar face. One of the Osterling boys, a face so similar to his own that it's like looking into a mirror. Incapable of killing a member of the family he idolizes, Joshua instead knocks the boy out and flees the scene. Despite being close to town, strangely enough, the young Simon never turned up again, and Joshua feared that maybe he'd struck him a bit too hard. When Josh learns that Simone is departing to the north, he follows, both in the hopes of escaping the attentions of Duke Osterling and protecting his half-sister to undo the wrong he did. Section 3. House Rules This is a small collection of rules that we agreed upon as a party to help smooth the game along, and some of them to add tension. The first one is that player death saves are rolled by the DM in private. As a result, this adds a certain level of tension to the concept of death saves. Active damage being taken by the players are visible, which means that it can be hard, easy to estimate those death saves that had been failed, but the ones that represent internal bleeding, perhaps mental anguish, are private and thus invisible, leading to the requirement of skill checks to identify a player's state. But when a player is reduced to zero hit points, they are not unconscious. They can see, talk, hear, but they cannot attack or perform any actions. Attacks that hit players that are at zero hit points, therefore, are not automatic crits, which normally result in two lost death saves. Large groups of enemies can be clumped together into units. These are mechanically a single creature, like a swarm, but represent medium-sized creatures. They come with advantage on any of the saving throws that only target one creature. For example, a spell like, say, Radiant Flame. However, spells that target multiple creatures cause them to make their save with disadvantage, like say, Fireball. Usually, their damage output scales with the size of the unit, and so tends to lesser as more members of it die. The players have an updated crafting system, replacing downtime activities, allowing for the creation of magic items. Normally at the behest of a skill check challenge and a significant investment of funds. 
If a player spends more than 10 minutes performing an activity, their passive skill is used, not an active die roll. This, mean, this represents the difference between hastily trying to accomplish something versus taking your time. For example, under the pressure of an orc attack, the rogue tries to pick a lock. This requires a skill check. And after failing, this will result in the rogue having to take his time to accomplish the task. But without any pressing need, once the orcs are defeated, the rogue may take 10 minutes and use his passive skill, which is 10 plus his skill mod, in order to pick the lock. A skill check may only be attempted twice, either by two players attempting separately, or one of them aiding the other if the aiding player is proficient in the skill. In order for the aid action to be used by a player to help another player perform a skill check, the player aiding the other must have proficiency in that skill, because normally without that proficiency they'd end up just getting in the way. And that's pretty much it for house rules. There are obviously going to be uh, custom creatures, strange environments, and weird rulings that you probably won't agree with. Um, but all of them are made in the interest of keeping the game fun and interesting. The only other house rule that I have that I'll really bring up is that normally speaking, when a mistake is brought up, say for example, the DC of a spell is misremembered, the damage of an attack is miscalculated, a die roll is forgotten, especially in combat, I've asked my players to wait until it is their turn once again. Because usually, with six players in a game, your turn already represents a small portion of the time that takes place in combat, and so having that interrupted by another player can be disruptive. So try to, to hold in your outrage when we make a mistake until we get a chance to fix it. Then be as outraged as you like. Alright folks, this is it for our session zero, and I'd like to end off by saying that we have been playing this game together for over a year now. We have had many deep conversations about the story, the characters, the game, the emotional states it's brought us, and we're honestly playing it because we love the game. And we love each other quite a lot. It's almost become like a second family. And I bring this up to remind you all that we do regularly check in with each other and have deep and meaningful discussions about what's happened in the game. This is not a throwaway light hobby, but rather something that we have found deeply meaningful. And it means a lot to us. And so we will attempt to maintain its integrity however we can. So while we do genuinely appreciate anybody excited and happy to offer us advice, odds are we'll probably ignore it in the interest of maintaining the integrity of our game. Thank you all so much for listening, and I am very excited to have you along on this journey.